This is undisciplined. Academic by nature, undisciplined in practice. I am Dr. Karee Banton, Director of African and African American Studies and Professor of History at the University of Arkansas. The podcast here, we will push the confines of your traditional academic disciplines and like the subjects of its concerns, African and African American studies, you know, survive under the most terrible of circumstances, but achieve rigor and become even more robust because of it. And so in this podcast, we will unveil how the objectives of African and African American studies can be found in the everyday, if you'll just look. Now let's get into it. Well, Warrington, today we're going to discuss the arts. Woohoo! What? Are you not fascinated by the arts? I see they got you kids playing the Fortnites and y'all, y'all just went to hell. Y'all lost all creativity and interest in it. See, what we're not going to do is lump my generation with these 2000s babies that be playing all the Fortnite, eating Tide Pods, and, and making TikToks. <laughs> I am a 90s baby. Oh, wow. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Well, no, it's not necessarily that my generation has lost creativity. I love the arts. In fact, I have taken several personal visits to museums and exhibits throughout my days, and I think I have a pretty good eye for nice pieces of art. Man, you let let a brother go to Crystal Bridges twice, and then all of a sudden you're Hank Willis (laughs) Thomas Jr. (laughs) No, 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 ma'am, no. But look, actually, it took me some time to get into visual art. I remember always being frustrated in elementary school when we colored in our coloring books or did art because I never created something that was as neat as my classmates. It seemed like I just didn't know how to pick the right color scheme to something. And and my pictures always came out looking like, not like I colored the page, but like it was some colors on the page. (laughs) So I, I would literally color like very, very slowly trying to outline whatever I was coloring and somehow... Some way I could never color inside the lines. Poor elementary Warrington. But guess what? I'm the same way too. In fact, I didn't even know that the rule was to color in the lines. Exactly. <laughs> I'm serious. Like, this was traumatizing as a kid because when it came to art in school, I never built the confidence to actually try to get better. So even today, the best you'll get out of me are stick figures and I can draw a mean cube. But you should understand, Dr. Ben, as a kid, I never, like you were just saying, I never really saw a point in coloring in the lines and staying in the lines. You know what I mean? Like, why can't fire trucks be yellow? Why can't I draw wings on Elmo that look like hamburgers? You know, like even at an early age, Dr. Ben, I wanted to be undisciplined and color outside the box. Oh, a true man of African and African-American studies. Well, Warrington, I'm deeply sorry about your traumatizing experiences with art. And I hope that one day you'll be able to finger paint again. (laughs) But I think that your yellow fire truck is actually a great segue into today's topic. So today we are talking art. We're talking about black art. And if we can go back for just a brief moment and remember that when enslaved Africans were brought to the United States, they experienced a kind of figurative baptism that washed away their sense of culture or tried at least to wash it away. 
tried to wash away their individuality. The aim was social death, right? So um, when you look at scholars like Michael Gomez, you know, he writes about the experience of traveling to a new land and how the amalgamation of diverging backgrounds and the culmination of different cultural experiences created this internal conundrum within the enslaved people as they tried to situate themselves amongst one another while also trying to navigate their new role as property in bondage. Well, enslaved people were prohibited from performing their rituals um, from their culture, practicing their religions. You know, um, there were ban banning of drums. You know, they brought all kinds of stuff like that over from Africa. The banjo. Did you know the banjo came over? I did not. Oh, yes. You know, they were banned from mourning their fallen countrymen. Slaveholders punished um, them for doing so. So they became creative in how they could hold on to some of their culture without being punished. And so from the start of this country, African-American culture, African diaspora culture, informed by the practices of Mother Africa, developed separately from that of the dominant culture because Black people were prohibited from participating except if they were the main attractions, you know, singing, playing the banjo, um, dancing for entertainment of white audiences and so on. African-Americans, even though they were banned, you know, or there were um, laws banning them practicing their drums and so on, you ban the drums, guess what? We're going to clap. <laughs> you know? Yes. We're going to create a beatbox. We're going to stomp. <laughs> okay. All right. Maybe. Yeah, no. And that career has passed for me. <laughs> that could never totally be quelled um, among black people. So um, producing this kind of art, um, especially producing visual art in this country since those times in slavery, you know, um, we've seen it now being slowly being accepted into mainstream culture. Early African-American painters, you know, people like Robert Duncanson, um, one of the first um, African-American um, artists to be recognized, you know, for his landscape paintings, had no formal training, learned to paint by copy and prints and, you know, European artworks. And today his works hang in the Smithsonian uh, American Art Museum. Edward Bannister was also able to gain some education in the arts at the Lowell Institute. And while slavery was still an institution, he created ties with abolitionists and established a livelihood as an artist. Henry Tanner, similarly, the first internationally acclaimed African-American painter, attended the Philadelphia Academy of the Fine Arts, studied in Paris. So while we're able to look at these artists and their work in museums today, they face incredible hardships to be artists. According to the Smithsonian American Museum, Mitchell Bannister was harshly critiqued by a reviewer who said the Negro has an appreciation for art while being manifestly unable to produce it. This was a statement published in the New York Herald in 1867. While the 19th century um, canon of black artists, um, we might not know a lot of them. Certainly there are a lot of virtuosos and musicians, if you remember 12 Years a Slave, mm -hmm. he was a virtuoso, right? right? Lots of other figures. Imagine those kinds of people who were creating but could not be entitled to the kinds of property or, or talent or, you know, were rented out to, to, to essentially uh, make money using the talent that they had and could never, you know, 
copyright trademark you know the st- the stories about all the rums and the whiskies and all that stuff that's been made that was created by enslaved people mm-hmm. right the 19th century was tough right but the most celebrated time for the arts in black history one could almost argue that it was the harlem renaissance the harlem renaissance the birth of the new negro it ushered in a wave of black visual artists and while the visual artists and other artists of the Harlem Renaissance um, tend to be overshadowed by authors and musicians the visual arts of that period were salient of the time as well you know artists like Arian Douglas Hale Woodruff Augustus Savage played a huge role in establishing black aesthetics in a world that wouldn't readily accept them they created their own opportunities in Harlem their presence made it known that African Americans can create great art and that they can possess the artistic and cognitive skills to do so indeed the Harlem Renaissance was a time for visual artists to create aesthetics distinct to the black experience in the US and to many other migrants who also came here took part in that as well steered by the likes of artists like Jacob Lawrence and Ramir Bearden who would go on to be well-known African American artists whose art now we cannot afford you know <laughs> it's like owning unless a basquiat unless you're Jay-Z unless you're Jay-Z you know now because black people were ostracized from the dominant culture through slavery and Jim Crow and other periods the culture they create has formed largely isolated from mainstream culture and throughout history African-American and African diaspora culture has formed in the confines of the black community and may have entered mainstream culture, but for the most part, there is some degree of isolation from the influence mm-hmm. of dominant culture. And so black people have contributed greatly to the larger American cultural landscape by way of their culture. I mean, if there is no black culture, there ain't no American culture. We all know this, That's true. right? And so while some of it has been co-opted, appropriated mm. right and filtered into a whole new form of the dominant culture i mean do people think of jazz as black anymore i don't even know <laughs> I, i mean one of at one point it was the dregs of the earth exactly and now it's just american You know, it's important for black people to be aware of this history and they should know of the the contributions that have been made um that is a part of the fabric of this country. We're joined today by I'm not even going to say friend Warrington. I'm going to say my auntie because you know, we as black people mm-hmm. when it gets to a certain level of relationship and respect yes. it moves to Antiville Auntie. and Uncleville Sharon Killian migrated to New uh New York Harlem specifically from my homeland Jamaica as a girl and spent her formative years in museums and galleries in Manhattan where she gained a respect for her affinity to a line of an artistic element and she graduated uh, from the University of Rochester in New York and was a teacher of art in a DC private school was a mentor for the youth through art before relocating to Fayetteville Arkansas with her husband Miss Gillian's work can be found in several private and corporate establishments across Northwest Arkansas, Tyson's Foods, University of Arkansas, and she 
teaches from time to time in the art education program at the University of Arkansas. She is the president of Art Alliance, um, which is a nonprofit arts institution, and also the president of the Northwest Arkansas African American Heritage Association. And she also has the best farm with pasture-raised cattle that makes the best ox tails. Okay? Come on, ox <laughs> She's a very passionate advocate, not only for the community, but um, for discovering cultural connections through the language of art. And her work as president of both Art Ventures and the Northwest African um, Arkansas African American Heritage Association is a testament to that because through those mediums, she helps to connect the communities in the region from a cultural and an artistic perspective. Welcome to Undisciplined, Auntie Sharon. Thank you. Thank you, my dear Karee. Now, Auntie Sharon, um, we've seen how significant a role art has played in the post-George Floyd movement, and indeed it has functioned very much in the same way in other movements. And I'm reminded by a quote from the GOAT herself, Miss Toni Morrison, declaring, in times of dread, artists must go to work. Right. Artists must never choose to remain silent. This is precisely the time that artists should go to work. There is no time for despair, no place for self-pity, no need for silence, no room for fear. We speak, we write, I guess we paint, we draw. We do language. This is how civilizations heal. I want you to respond to that, because when I think about it, I think about you and all that you've done. Oh, thank you so much for that. And you've put me in company that I wouldn't even deign to uh, put myself in. Well, it is such a complicated thing, I think, for Black people in general, because part of our history is having to be silent to survive. And that tendency is something that, you know, at at once proves to be the way to survive. And at other times, depending perhaps on luck or whatever, you might, you know, see that uh, it doesn't really make a difference. If they think that they can oppress you or hurt you or harm you or whatever, it's just going to happen. It doesn't matter whether you're nice or not. And Toni Morrison is taking the road, the road that I'd call the high road, and we just hope that we don't become martyrs, right? Sometimes it's all complicated by experience. You talked about the the Harlem Renaissance, for instance, and that period was uh, primarily from 1919 to maybe 1930. And what was happening in 1919 across this country? Red Summer was happening. And we were being slaughtered en masse. At the same time, you have the artists in Harlem who are trying to combat that, be on the opposite end of that. And they're actually, it infused the Harlem Renaissance because it was a direct reflection of what we escaped during that great migration. The artist painted about the great migration. And Jacob Lawrence, you know, did a whole series of dozens of these. I think there were probably like 24 pieces about the Great Migration. And other artists in the the Harlem Renaissance were creating sculptures 
that actually, I'd say, describing uh, some of the pain of bondage and that, you know, we weren't so far away from it. I think there's a, one piece at Crystal Bridges right now for, of hers that shows a piece of that uh, sentiment. You know, she was creating our vision or, or our faces, our bodies. And it wasn't something that you would find usually. You know, we were totally discouraged from representing ourselves. It was definitely a special thing. And it, of course, you saw that it dissipated too. And there, was, there became a lockdown on what would be considered art. And in generally speaking, as the modernists came to the fore, Black people, Black artists were held quite a lot. And some of them were selected out to be allowed to continue. But I think a lot of the a lot of the tensions of the time influenced who was able to stay afloat or not, at least in this country. So. They were created the image of black people, right? Who they thought black people were supposed to be, right? Whether they were going to cower yep. before the white man or whether they were going to stand up and be brave. So imagine maybe some art maybe rose to the surface and some floundered based on what people gravitated to during that time. Yes, and I think that part of the important part of this, when we talk about Toni Morrison, is that her philosophy was about you're talking your own language for yourself. And so if you're speaking your own language for yourself, achievement of the, the focus that she presented in that quote, that it's no time to rest, right? If you're speaking to yourself, then there is no fear, okay? You're speaking for and to yourself, there's no fear. And part of the challenge of that situation when it comes to being an artist, quote unquote, an artist proper, is that since black people uh, have generally had to start from minus zero when it comes to any kind of financial security, who was going to support us? We can be supported emotionally within our communities. And as the larger society, which I called white supremacist society, decided that we weren't supposed to be independent. And we weren't supposed to create a, a moneyed society within our own communities. Then who else are we going to depend on to purchase our stuff? You know, when you think about it that way, the dilemma is there for survival. But what Tony Morrison, I think that that is all couched under, you should be focusing on talking in your own language, speaking your own language, which is, I think, a key part of being able to achieve. And so black art always rises to meet the need of black people, right? So we need art mm -hmm. that is varied, ugly, beautiful. We need art that educate, that entertain, that mm -hmm. empower, that mm -hmm. enlarges our imagination, you know, because that's where liberation is. And essentially, this is why art is so important to the practice of African and African-American studies. What kind of art do you create? I paint with uh, oils and with acrylics and with dust, dry pastel dust. And I grew up in the time where I was taught a lot about modernism and American modernism and practiced that, learned a lot of that. But I was creating black faces, black bodies at the same time. You know, but I remember a lot of stuff that affected me, uh, like, Creating black by 
mixing several different uh, hues, right? And not to use the black paint as if there was something wrong with using black paint. This is how it was taught. You wouldn't believe it. Some people wouldn't believe it, but that's how it's taught. And yes, you can get wonderful practice. I still do, you know, black has got so many different colors in it. Yes, but there is nothing wrong with using black. You could choose it. It's being made around uh, from different, you know, uh, manufacturers and everything. And it was really a very interesting concept. I always matched that to blackness, you know, and... <laughs> I know it seems a little trite, but, you know, I still always match that to blackness. There's nothing wrong with being, using black. I still have this thing about, and this is a little bit of an aside, you know, when people say that, oh, we're in a deep, dark place, and they say that as a negative thing, it affects me. It affects me. I don't like it. I don't, you know, I've uh, said it to somebody before, politician, when you, you say we're in a deep, dark place, or whatever, and we need to come out into the light. I'm like, you know, if you want to talk to me, you know, you can't really use it. Use blackness or... Attribute you know. evil and everything that's bad yes. to black. Exactly. And I, you know, I think this thing runs through our society, you know, in a, in a, in a huge way. It's not this way in every culture either. And I don't like it. I'm an, an abstractionist at heart, very cerebral about it. And as a grown-up, I forget how old I was. As a grown-up, I saw the G's Bend quilts, G's Bend, Alabama. They're quilts that were made for comfort, for warmth, by black people who lived in this, it's not really quite an island, but they, the people were cut off from the primary society in, in Alabama. And they had to use like a, a boat to get across from G's Bend to the mainland. They were on what used to be a plantation, and it was kind of abandoned. They used old cloth, they used scraps, and they created, if you go and you look, you will see the most wonderful abstractions that you've ever experienced. Near the, the Depression and so on, they were giving artists jobs and so on to go around and take pictures or record, you know, communities. And they got to G-Spend too and saw those quilts. I've, I've got a book inside me about that, but uh, it probably won't ever happen. Nevertheless, the impetus for modernism, you can see it in the, in the G-Span quilts. Do we see, you know, your emotions and the things that you're kind of caught up in, in your art, reflected in your art a lot? I, I believe so. I believe so. One of the things that I think you definitely see if you, you know, shift from the white gaze, you start to think about where does she get this from? What is she doing? Why is she? Well, we came with it here. We were painting on our houses in West Africa. You can see that the ability, the skill, the perspective came with us across the water. And I tell you that it was a freeing thing to see myself in G's bed. I know you were very involved in the community, especially as chair of Northwest Arkansas African American Heritage Association. How did you come to create that organization and what kind of work have you all been involved in doing? Yeah, thanks for asking about that. I met Melba Smith here 
at a Black History Month talk that was uh, happening in the neighborhood in Fayetteville. We didn't meet eye to eye because, you know, even though I'm like 5'8", she was 6'1". So we, I can't say eye to eye. But we looked at one another and, you know, I thought, she's got attitude. And we connected. You know, she lived in New York City. I was living here. But she came back to do her own research on uh, family and uh, the community. She thought it was an important thing. And we talked about how much I'm interested in that very same thing and the how much I feel that this community is mine too. Even though I'm from Jamaica, that was a slave place. They used to take us there to break us. And the fact that we had a place to get off made a huge difference in how we were able to break free of uh, some of the bondage. We were a wonderful team. I've been just about everywhere in this region. And what I learned, not just learned, but what gelled for me is how our absence in areas like this is our presence. You know, we've done a lot of research and she had done some before we formed the group in 2008. So we've been involved in a lot of things from in the community, filming, talking, showing. I believe that I kind of created the gateway for art in this area having to do with Black people. I mean, this is after, you know, and in addition to all the work that we've done, I've been involved with this arts organization. Being involved in NWA, African American Heritage Association, focusing on Black people in our region took me to the next step in a circular way because we are, as I said, whole entire human beings and oppression is put upon us and it forces us to make adjustments to survive. We started to uh, work on this cemetery because cemeteries we feel, especially since you can hardly find us anymore because we were run out of places. There remains some semblance of our burial places. And we started looking at Baldwin Cemetery, which is at Mallory Wagon Road and Van Hoos Drive. And when we were going up there, this is in 2008, you don't see yourself unless you bring yourself in. For this particular project, we did get some money from Arkansas Heritage Association, I think it is, to help to restore some of that cemetery, which primarily has unmarked or sandstone markers. And I'm still living a huge disappointment because a piece of the land was stolen and the, the city of Fayetteville and Washington County allowed it. The other thing that we get to do is we go in and talk to children. There are so many people still here in Northwest Arkansas who are descended from enslaved peoples in this region. So it seems as if your work now at Art Ventures, that our um, organization, combines that interest in the Black community and with art. Can you tell us what its primary guiding principles are and what kind of work you do over there? So I, I know that uh, art is a language that doesn't need to necessarily be interpreted. No matter who you are, somehow some of your DNA shows up in it. I believe that that's a key to communication and certainly across cultures. I can tell you that in this area here, 
there's always been kind of like an, an arts, quote unquote, arts culture. A lot of people come from mostly white communities to find the land and they, they'll tell you they moved here in the 60s and so on. And that culture kind of dominated the scene. I know that black people, even if we're not, if we don't have a bunch of art hanging on our walls, that doesn't mean that we're not artistic. And so I made sure that the artists inside the communities are, are, are found. And this is not only black communities, but other peoples who are not from the white or the Caucasian cultural space. Because white people are automatically in the mix as a majority culture, let's say, around here. I feel that it is imperative that the underserved and underrepresented cultural communities are equalized, are placed inside the spaces that are here because it belongs to them. And so that's the, some of the work that we do. Everything belongs to Black people, you know, Marshallese people, Latino people. Okay, we're not a subset of anything. That's what I try to, to do with the arts, make it uh, so that the people who are not used to walking into galleries to ask for representation know that they're supposed to be able to do it too. that leads us now to, as our good brother Walter Rodney used to say, our segment called Grounding with My People. As we said, you know, your work certainly at Art Ventures and the Northwest Arkansas African American Heritage Association certainly reminds us of the importance of Black art as a tool for liberation and for as movement work, right? And this is why it's so important to us and the concerns that we have in the study of African and African American studies. As I mentioned earlier, you've been involved in a number of works here, mostly murals and so on. And... I know in recent times, there has been some efforts to deface some of the murals and, you know, things like that that have been painted here. In July, a white pride was painted over the building on Martin Luther King Boulevard in Fayetteville. And um, I know the local artist painted over the sign with a different message that says, Love Unites Us. And that was then painted over with Love Weakens Us. And so I'm wanting to, you know, for you to talk about your involvement with the series of murals across Northwest Arkansas and the post-George Floyd summer uprisings. And what do you think it represents for the Northwest Arkansas community? I gathered a group of young folk and artists and we did a mural at what I call the protest corner on Dixon and College and it has still not been defaced. You know, we actually thought it could be at some point. It did generate a variety of uh, outlook for and against, you know, Black Lives Matter, All Lives Matter and all that. But it hasn't been defaced. And that's a good thing, I think. It says something. It's very complicated because the church across the parking lot, St. Paul's, had a Black Lives Matter banner ripped up more than once, I think. And just across the way, they haven't done anything to it. Nothing so far has happened. It's still beautiful and bright. And lots of different people are coming to take pictures. Families are taking pictures in front of it. And I'm glad that they're drawn to it. You know, of course, we used resource materials, but 
the basis for the, the that mural are people who are who live here and have lived in the community. I'm not really sure how to parse that. Does it have anything to do with the fact that it, it was Black people who were leading that charge to put that up and maybe there's some concern? I don't know. I believe the murals that you were talking about on MLK were put up by a, an artist who was, I don't know if I could say this person is white, identified. All I can tell you about that part is that I really don't know who, what, when, I don't think they figured it out. But I do know that people came into town and drove you know, drove their their uh, pickup trucks up and down MLK, you know, uh, with the Confederate flag flying up in there, with the slave flag, as I call it, flying big and bright. You know, and I think it's supposed to be a real true insult, you know, especially since they changed the name from Sixth Street to MLK. We keep trying to make change, right? There have been other murals of Black culture and other cultures around. And there have been many different kinds of controversies, like, for instance, for the series of uh, artworks that come into the gallery for, say, Black History Month, every one of those pieces are done by Black artists. So it's not like an ally kind of thing or somebody who likes Black skin or likes to paint Black skin. It's They're all by Black artists because there's a certain thing about authenticity that is important to me and I think important to people. So... If you're there and you can do it, then that's what that's what we want. I think that um, you know everybody doesn't feel that way, and I think some of that happens when you can't find enough people in the community. But you just you have to keep looking because we are here. We are either here among you, or you might have to go looking around a little bit. Go a little bit farther away because really it's not as if you're not connected anyway. There are not enough of us perhaps, but you've got to keep working at it. What are your feelings about the juxtaposition of black art alongside, you know, I know you, you, the, you've spoke about the work you've done with the cemetery and the black cemetery is right next to the Confederate cemetery. So I'm oh, wondering, one, yes. yeah, what, what are your feelings about the juxtaposition of black art alongside Confederate memorials or, you know, black lightness or you know, sculptures or anything like that being used as a replacement for that kind of, um, you know, historical memorials? Well, when we talk about the historical memorials of the Confederacy, you know, they're losers, right? And they lost. And they're wrong. And they're trying to glorify this negative, hateful, barbaric practice. Okay? And it's never something that should have been glorified. And, and putting up the fancy guys in their quote-unquote fancy you know, uniforms to perpetuate a lie. So it's not like it's real. So take it down. And, and as a matter of fact, they were put up. A lot of them were put up to scare me, okay? They were put up to say white supremacy is the thing, okay? And it is right. Well, no. So they need to come down. And actually, the fact of the matter is, if replacing it with a black person on a horse, replacing it with a reflection of black is more like the truth. Because while you were whipping my back, okay, I was building this place. The truth of the matter is, I stand tall, and if you want to put up a statue, 
to memorialize power, mine goes up, not your loser statue. Did you know that a lot of these statues were placed in places that were actually lynching places? Mm-hmm. Did you hear that? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Take it down, you know. <laughs> So my final question for you, are you optimistic that we will see more of this kind of flowering of art in Northwest Arkansas, the region and the nation? I'm always concerned that it's going to go away the next minute. I really am. I I hope it doesn't, but it's not like it's the first time, you know. We're trying to keep the momentum up, but it's not only up to us. Uh, there's a lot of work for white society to do, to be truthful and to accept the fact that we're equals. We've been trying for so long, you know, I always am I'm concerned that it's not going to, that we're going to, it's going to go away. I'm always concerned it's going to go away. I, and I tend to be a very optimistic person, you know. <laughs> well, I share, share your sentiments. Um, and I want to thank you so much for joining us on, on discipline and I know you are the epitome of what we consider to be undisciplined, combining all of the different ways of approaching the concerns that we have in the black community and going out and doing that work. So thank you so very much, uh, Ms. Galeen. Yeah, it was a pleasure. I really appreciate uh, your doing this program. Uh, it is something that I think we need. And uh Thank you so much. Undiscipline is hosted by me, Karee Banton, with help from Warrington Sibri. We're produced by Matthew Moore at KUAF. And if you haven't yet, subscribe to Undiscipline for free wherever you can get podcasts. Thanks for listening.